A wealthy woman who hides the truth of her husband's death commits suicide. The following evening, a wealthy widower is stabbed in the back in his own home. A retired detective is convinced to investigate and expose the truth that no one wants to hear. The detective? Hercule Perot. The book? The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. And you're listening to Lit Society. Let's get lit! Hi, readers. This is Alexis. And this is Kari at 7 in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) And you're listening to Lit Society, a podcast about books and drama. Yup. And you know what? Last week was, like, embarrassing. (laughs) You set me up for the okie doke. And I don't appreciate it, okay? I don't appreciate it. I've got some feedback from my readers. They loved it. I don't want to hear it. I'm, I don't even want to hear Someone I said, don't know no answer. Put Alexis on the spot more often. And I said, sure, anything for the readers. <laughs> <laughs> wow, isn't that special? Yep. Isn't that special? I well, I'm so. just going to be regular. You're just going to have to tell me what you did this week. Because that's what I want to know. I want to know nothing else. Extra. <laughs> no problem. So, I don't know if I should say this. But we have some big plans coming up for the Lit Society podcast. And... In line with that, this week, I drug you out of the house and you cooperated. And we were safe. We distanced. We wore a mask. But I have fun with you. <laughs> Listen, I appreciate fun. Okay, I do. I do. But it's still early. The flip side of that, I had a lot of fun. I felt brand new. I was like outside. I was doing things. And to make it clear, you're just being really safe. I don't, I feel like better safe than sorry, right? So you stay in the house. You still like to isolate, quarantine. I'm um, not like to. You think that's the best course of action. And I'm in line to agree with you. I, I agree with you. So for me, it was like, you know, caution to the wind. Let's go kick it. <laughs> I think all my friends just want to throw caution to the wind. I'm the only no, one holed no. up in the house. No, no, no. Life is important. Life is valuable. We didn't do anything to jeopardize our lives. Like I said, we were safe. But I sure enough made you get out in them streets with yeah, people like and I was stuff. literally in the streets. Yeah. It was, it was crazy. It was a it good was time. Crazy. So what you do this week besides that? Well, I had plans to besides succumbing to bad influences. Uh-huh. <laughs> I had plans to play tennis with a friend, but she canceled because of a back injury. Mm-hmm. So we ended up going for a walk and just having lunch. So that is a an adventure I took on my own, and it was um it, it was okay. It was okay. It was <laughs> yeah. okay. So I I I just want to play tennis though before the um before it gets really cold outside. So I'm hoping that you and I can do that at some point. For sure, yeah. I was a professional tennis player. I don't know if you remember. <laughs> I, do, I didn't I win any matches. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like none. I remember your skills back yeah, in the day. Yeah, it was it's really like bad. <laughs> but but I was on that team. So yes, so. yes. Get into it. <laughs> Let's jump into society says because it's time <laughs> where we share our. Share your comments with the rest of our lit society. Kari, yes. did you find a comment that you love? Alexis, girl, litty? I did. This is the Lydia's comment of the week, and it comes from Jennifer Clement. Does that name sound familiar? Uh-oh, uh-oh. I think that's our <laughs> author from last week. That is the author of Prayers for the Stolen. She wrote us, emailed Ask Us at LitSocietyPod.com. Oh, wow. So kind. Um, that feels good. And I'll share a little bit. She said, we made her day. Um, you ladies made my day. You made me laugh aloud. And you also made me feel so honored by your lovely words. Thank you for reviewing oh, my book. No, so Jennifer, nice. thank you for writing that book. That story exactly. is stuck with us. And we mm-hmm. love books like that. Um, you're an amazing writer. And thank you for taking time out of your day to give us some feedback. You know, it always shocks me when authors listen to our, to us. <laughs> You yeah, I, I learn it, people. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Slum it with us. Uh, mm-hmm. Kylie Reed shared some comments again, and she's always saying great things about us. 
Um, we appreciate it. Yeah, it we definitely so appreciate good. that. Mm-hmm. So it what really a, does. Yeah, for sure. What What about you, Alexis? Do you have any comments from the society that you'd like to share? Uh, now, I will say, um, if I could jump back on your comment from Jennifer, yeah. is that I, I can't stop thinking about the voice uh, the words of the mom yeah <laughs> from last week i just can't stop so you did I'm the so, audio book yeah and I it was to well the audio done too. it was it was so well done oh, I love uh, that. it was just really well done so anyway yeah and yes a, a reader can um the audiobook reader can make or break the book sometimes so to have a voice accompany that book so uh perfectly yeah that's awesome yeah i agree so what about you have you found any lit comments from the society you'd like to share okay so i jumped back to um, I jumped back into your favorite world, and that is Apple Podcasts. Yeah, okay. that's I, right. I jumped in there, and I saw this uh, comment from I Be Reading, <laughs> and they said I love the name. Love the chemistry between the hosts on this show. They really listen to each other, and both provide refreshing insight on weekly topics. Fave part are the readings with music and sound effect really brings each story to life. Oh, thank you so much. I be reading for your comment. We yeah, love it. Thank you, girl. And thank you, Jennifer Clement. We appreciate yes, you. Yes, thank you. The support we do. Now, let's jump into our theme of the week. Each week, readers, we select a theme to discuss inspired by the book we are reading. The theme chosen for this week is how to avoid being a gossip. Oh, I have us. some in. Yeah, <laughs> I have some experience with being a gossip. Okay, I do. <laughs> well, come on and confess there. I'm gonna just be honest, but I think um, I can say that at one time or another, we've all gossiped and or been the subject of gossip. Me? Would do you, you think agree? I gossip? I don't think I gossip. Do, have you heard me gossip? Okay, so maybe you haven't gossiped with me, but I think everybody has gossiped. I think okay? that's a pretty blanket statement to make. Oh. And I'm going to make it. Okay? okay, I'm just going to make it. <laughs> you done made it. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. That's decided. what I said. I'm a ch- gossip. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so to, to gossip about others can be fun to do. And um, <laughs> wait, where is this and you going? May en- and you may enjoy it with friends, but when the subject of gossip <laughs> is you, it's not uh, so fun. Do you hear me? It's not fun. Yeah. Have you ever been the subject of gossip, Carl? Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> do share. Oh no, I'm not gonna share because because it was hurtful, I moved right? Past it, and it was hurtful, and it was mm-hmm. untrue. I mean, yeah. a few times. <laughs> Okay, but so that but that's really the point. Yeah. You would you don't want to share it because it is hurtful, right? And because I feel and like people can say terrible things about you just based on it's always about them, it's not about you. And perhaps that person has moved on from whatever situation they were in that made them say that. So if they listen to this show, I don't want to bring that up again. I'm yes. over it. <laughs> And, and that think. just highlights, again, <laughs> that the experience of um, gossiping is hurtful, right? Yeah, it is. So um, what is gossip? Uh, one definition describes it as casual or unconstrained conversation or reports about other people. And it typically involves details that are not confirmed as being true. Do you have another definition for gossip, Kari? Um, gossip can be true. Yeah. That's all I would say is, did you say that? I said typically um, yeah, so typically involves, untrue. Sometimes it can mm-hmm. even be true things that you know that are uh, was perhaps told to you in confidence or that you overheard, but you should not share, and you know you shouldn't share it, right? But you like right. the attention, maybe that comes with yeah. sharing it. So there is good gossip, though. So what do you suppose that looks sure, like? Sure, yeah. Um, and I'm not um, perfect in this, but I definitely try to spread good gossip, and that should always be true things positive things that you've heard about others yeah so there's good gossip it's encouraging it lifts people up but then there's harmful gossip and that's the one that just really has a negative impact on us yeah. um, it tears down and it can quickly turn into slander i found an article on the spruce.com and it was called gossip is bad form oh bad form okay yeah um the article discussed personal office school and internet gossip i think internet gossip is huge right now right sure yeah it talked about each each of those in a little detail but then it ended with some etiquette the etiquette of dealing with gossip okay oh lay it on me 
All right. <laughs> when you are tempted to gossip, stop for a few seconds. Consider how it would feel if you were the subject of whatever is being said. And remember that it's never okay to say anything that isn't true, right? So let's jump into these tips. It's only four of them, but they're strong tips, okay? I don't care what you say, Kari. <laughs> okay. okay. You're always judging my tips. I had to say it <laughs> earlier. Anyway, number one, stop and change the subject. As soon as someone starts to gossip, intentionally discuss another topic. How do you do that? Like, okay, everyone, I think we're gossiping. Let's change the subject. You don't even don't have do to that. announce it like that. <laughs> you could that. just <laughs> change the subject. For real. You could just change the subject. It's and I found it helpful easy. to turn it on you. Like if the gossip is, did you see what Mary Jane wore to the such and such? Now she know better than that. You can just say, oh, I remember that time when I wore such and such. I was looking crazy. Do y'all remember when? Um, And then just go ahead, turn it on you. And then the conversation can go wherever you want it to go after that. <laughs> okay. So then if you do that, what happens when the person tries to take it back to the gossip? What do you do then? We still talking about that. <laughs> you know, you can jokingly um call attention to the truth. Like, now, why are you so fascinated with Mary J, girl? She's still your man. Yeah. You know, stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're good at that. <laughs> That's a good one. Okay. Yeah. So self-deprecation is the key. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, the article suggests give them, give him or her a firm look and just switch the subject again. So your suggestion is great. And there's another one for you. Number two, don't whisper in the presence of others. Even if you're not talking about someone, it appears that you are and may hurt the feelings of people around you. Oh, I'm guilty of that. Okay. That's just like real simple and straight to the point. Yeah. Number three, defend the subject. And you showed an example of that, Kari. Even if what is being said is true, defend the person in the most logical way possible. If you know that the gossip is a lie, call it that. If there is a grain of truth or you're not sure, say that you don't know the circumstances behind whatever it was being said and you don't want to continue this discussion. And number four, <laughs> leave. Mm. If the gossip continues, simply walk away. That's truly a strong way to suggest that you don't want to be involved in gossiping. The people doing all that malicious chatting will get the message. But just be warned that you might be the subject of the next gossip session, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, I saw um, additional information on WikiHow. You're familiar with WikiHow? <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, they be the having trash pictures can of the internet. Yes. And they be having pictures and stuff. <laughs> they I do. love WikiHow. They show you how not they to They be gossip. like how to find the purpose of life in three easy to follow pictures. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Come through WikiHow with the purpose of life. <laughs> So what I found on Wookie How, I said, take what you need. I say it. Take what you need and leave the rest behind. <laughs> they had a series of questions that you could ask yourself before you repeat information. A series. Here goes. Is it true? Is mm. it necessary? Does it need to be said? Would you say it to that person's face? Is it harmful? Is it substantiated? Am I doing this to make myself feel better or raise my status? Is this something that I heard second or third hand? Does it need to be said right now? So I think those questions are invaluable. Yeah, I love and that. And a good thing to pop in your mind when you're ever in a situation where gossip, or even if you yourself are the author of such gossipy words. Yeah, think first. There are so many quotes out there about gossip. I just selected a few of them that kind of stood out to me, and I want to share them with you. Okay, bring them. Whoever gossips to you will gossip about you. That's my favorite. And I've heard that. That's a Spanish proverb. This one is the next one. The biggest liar in the world is they say. And that's by <laughs> you know they say. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know they say. Did you hear what they said? Mm -hmm. All forms of say. And <laughs> the... The third one that I pulled up was, the truth is, words can hurt. And while they don't physically break bones, they can damage your spirit. 
and that's by Susan Prague. You got any uh, quotes that you've heard about gossiping that stands out to you that you want to share with us? I don't really have any quotes, but I can share some things I found about gossip. That would be great. So some of our friends and family, I don't mean you and I, I mean like in general, (laughs) we all know people Mm -hmm. who gossip and don't even call it gossip or don't consider it gossip. It's just the way they talk. And most of their talk is about other people. Um, And it's just putting their opinion on what someone else has done or uh, the way even someone presents themselves. The thing is, if you don't know what you're doing is gossip, you can't even fix it. So uh, subconsciously with people like that, we can make sure that we're pointing to the fact that it's gossip, not in a teacher student way, because none of us are perfect, but by um, again, drawing attention to our own faults, um, ours and that of the other person who's doing the gossiping and then letting that person know, Hey, you know how I don't like to talk about other people around you. Just know that when you're not around, I'm not talking about you either. So you can Mm. always trust me, even on a subconscious level, People recognize when you don't engage in gossip and they trust you. Don't betray that trust. Um, So if someone confides something in you, sometimes too, like a friend has told me something and I'm not, again, perfect with this. To me, it's not a big deal, (laughs) but I know that they don't want it spread. So I Mm -hmm. I just won't share Mm -hmm. it. Or at least I try to be that way. I've had um, mistakes. I've made mistakes in the past, but. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, as a rule. So if someone says, you know, I really like, um, you know, uh, Chris Evans and you know, Chris Evans personally, maybe don't tell all your other friends. Ooh, you know, Alexis got a crush on Chris Evans (laughs) for real. It's Uh no big deal to like someone else, but they just might not want it out there like that. So in the streets yeah. they don't want it in the streets okay yeah maybe they told you a little bit in confidence so and it's always cool to have someone come up to you like did you know so and so and be like what when yeah you've been knowing for months <laughs> 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 it just makes you feel good like mm, i really kept that in the vault good for me <laughs> oh yeah that is a, um, a good reliable yeah. um, <laughs> feature you know you ain't gotta lie just be shocked all the time mm-hmm. So exactly. that's my little two cents. And when you're not talking about other people, you realize there's so much to talk about. <laughs> mm-hmm. So much that's encouraging, that's edifying, um, that's fun, that has nothing to do with people you know. Talk about celebrities. Shoot. Talk about yourself. <laughs> Worry about, about yourself. yourself. How about that? <laughs> Worry about yeah. yourself. <laughs> yeah, okay. that's right. Yeah. Let's focus. So and 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 let me just say that's when I say we all gossip at one time or another because yeah. there's good and harmful gossip it doesn't mean that you um are spreading harmful gossip it just means in some form or fashion we have gossiped about yeah and good gossip is fun to spread so if a friend of yours yep. um just got a promotion or just reached a goal and it's public knowledge it's public yep. knowledge it's public knowledge spread that i repeat spread it far and wide like did you hear my Alexis did the and then your friend, your Absolutely. other friends will be like, what? That means, you know, if she can do it, maybe I can do it. That's all. That's all good stuff. That's right. That's right. Okay. Well, then let's take a quick break before we get into the context and the author intro for the murder of Roger. Let's do it. We here, okay. <laughs> Let's get a little background on our author and maybe some context around the book. Is that okay, Kari? Sure, yeah, that's fine. Now, this is our second Agatha Christie book we've covered on the show. Before we launched this podcast, we had a okay. test oh, group of listeners. <laughs> um, that was back like in October when we started. And for them, we did even another Agatha Christie book, Murder on the Orient Express. So we've mm-hmm. been over Agatha Christie's stories three times. Mm-hmm. After this time. Yeah. And I'm still going to let you know a little something about it. There's always a detail <laughs> or a snippet to be included. Right. Okay? <laughs> so now this context I'm getting from the book we read this week. Um, it had a great little summary about her life. Agatha Christie is the most widely published of all time author in any language. Outsold only by the Bible, 
And who, Alexis? Dang, I don't remember the answer. Put Alexis on the spot is my new favorite pastime. (laughs) Yeah, you should know this. We'll wait. (laughs) Only two. Oh, no, don't do it. Only And Shakespeare. Shakespeare. God and Shakespeare. Agatha's books have been sold more than a a billion copies in English and another billion in a hundred foreign languages. She's the author of 80 crime novels and short story collections. I think it's 80 words. Because there's 66 um, detective novels and 14 short story collections. Okay, okay, got it. 19 plays, two memoirs, and six novels written under a pseudonym. What's that pseudonym, Alexis? Oh, <laughs> you better be glad I got some notes because you can't get me this time. You can't. You cannot what get me. What was the pseudonym that Agatha Christie wrote under for six Mary, of her novels? Mm-hmm. Mary Westcott. Westmacott? Westmacott. You got it, girl. Hey! <laughs> she first tried her hand at detective fiction uh, while working in a hospital dispensary during wo- World War One, creating the now legendary Hercule Poirot and her debut novel, The Mysterious Affair at Styles. Okay, can I just say, don't try to outdo me on pronunciation. It don't feel good. This feels like a, a form of gossip. Uh-huh. It feels Did like y'all that. Okay? know that Alexis can't say Hercule Poirot? Okay, so um, in 1971, she achieved, she achieved one of Britain's highest honors when she was made a dame of the British Empire. I have a favorite dame. Do you have one? I think it's mine. Um, yes. Dame Judy Dench. Dame Judy Dench. Okay. Get into it. Ooh, love that lady. Anyway, Agatha Christie, back to her or whatever. Man, coming from Judy Dench to Agatha Christie, unimpressed. However, <laughs> back to Agatha. She died in 1976 at the age of 85. Um, that's my little summary on Agatha. Aggie, as well, I, I call like. her, because sometimes she aggravates Oh, <laughs> she is. Well, I love the... um the information that you share we appreciate oh, no that problem. so why don't we jump into um you sharing a brief synopsis without spoilers one death leads to another in this case involving two influential families in one small town fortunately like jordan in 1995 hercule poirot is back from retirement and ready to save us all but will he crack his case in time to save the accused? That's it. So what were your first <laughs> thoughts about this book, Alexis? Well, you know, I just really enjoy Agatha Christie. So, you know, yeah, you I was ready. ready. I like, um, I love mystery. It's up there. So, yeah. How about you? What were your first thoughts? The last Agatha book we read was Murder on the Orient Express, which is the most perfect crime novel I've ever read in my life. Uh, So I was really excited to get into Murder of Roger Ackroyd, which I heard is the best uh, book featuring the character Hercule Poirot. So I was ready. Wait, wait, wait. Was that our last one or was it? And then there were none was our last one, wasn't it? What did I say? Murder on the Orient Express? Right. Sorry. No, I meant and then there were none. Let me correct myself. And then there were none is the most perfect crime mystery I've ever read. Murder Mm -hmm. on the Orient Express is all right. (laughs) Sorry. That's good. Yeah, I, I understand that. All right, so then are we ready to jump into this deep dive? Yes. Okay, are we ready? Yes, so ready. Okay, let's deep dive into this, uh, Kari, and you can put all the spoilers in that you Spoiler uh, have alert. available. Going forward, we're going to spoil this book for y'all. And here we go. A deep dive into The Murder of Roger Ackroyd by Agatha Christie, part one. The Real Housewives of King's Abbott. <laughs> so, Alexis, Mrs. Ferrers, how do you say her name? Ferrers. Oh, yeah, something like that. Let's go with that. So Mrs. Ferrers is dead. Da da dom. Dr. James Shepard, the local doctor, has just returned from Mrs. Ferrers' home. She had been dead for hours by the time he arrived. He returns home where he lives with his nosy sister, Carolyn. Carolyn doesn't go out looking for anyone's business. Everyone's business just seems to fall into her lap upon her <laughs> tongue before it finally falls out of her mouth constantly. She's a gossip. It's her. It's like what she does. She oh, has no other oh. talents. <laughs> mm-hmm. And she's always suspected Mrs. Ferris had killed her husband, Mr. Ferris. In Carolyn's always. mind. Yeah. In Carolyn's mind, Mrs. Ferris' death proves her guilt because it was an overdose. So she must have took her own life. That's speculation. But that's what Carolyn's decided. 
Dr. James Shepard neither confirms nor denies his sister's theories. Frankly, he doesn't seem to know the circumstances surrounding what happened, truthfully. So Dr. Shepard lives in Kings Abbott. Like we said, he's the area doctor. There's not much to do in the small town, which is located outside of London. So the official pastime is gossip. There are two houses that kind of act as like an impromptu, impromptu uh, Bravo channel for everybody. <laughs> and one of the houses I is uh, King Paddock. And every time I hear that name, I think about your family. You got some Paddocks in your family? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. <laughs> that love might be their property much. too. Yeah. Okay. You know, they like big property. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so this day house, one is King of Paddock, <laughs> the name of the house where Mrs. Ferris, the name of the house Mrs. Ferris received from her late husband. And the other home is Fernley Park. And the latter is owned by Roger Ackroyd. Roger Ackroyd is a wealthy widower. The town believed that he and Mrs. Ferrers were carrying on a romance. And perhaps she mm. took her life after he ended the relationship. That's some, mm, some word more speculation. on the street. Do you hear me? <laughs> word on the street says it. <laughs> Both Ackroyd and Ferrers were surviving mates of a spouse who drank themselves to death. Ackroyd's last wife was his second wife. And she already had a seven-year-old son when they wed. After her death, Ackroyd continued to treat that boy as if he was his own. Um, he's in his early 20s now, that child. 25 years old. He a heartbreaker, too. Easy on the eyes, and he knows it if you catch my drift. At some point, Ackroyd's sister-in-law and daughter began staying with him from Canada. They came from Canada and stayed with him because they're penniless. Um, again, his sister-in-law and her daughter. So this sister-in-law married Ackroyd's brother. I think Ackroyd's brother is dead now. And so the sister-in-law and her daughter, Ackroyd's niece, came to stay with him from Canada. Correct. Maybe it's assumed that sister-in-law forced the end of Ackroyd and Farrah's relationship to kind of like secure her position in Ackroyd's house and her access to his money. She's not interested in Ackroyd romantically, but she is interested in him financially. (laughs) Flora, the sister's daughter, Ackroyd's niece, sorry, you guys, it's assumed by the town has been carrying on a relationship with Ackroyd's son, her cousin in a way, although they share no blood. Dr. Shepard is thinking about the last time he saw Ackroyd's adopted son, Ralph. It was the night before Mrs. Ferris died, in fact. Ralph and Mrs. Ferris were walking along the street together with their heads close, speaking excitedly about something. When Dr. Shepard casually mentions Ralph being in town to Ackroyd, his adopted father, Ackroyd is instantly and clearly confused. He hasn't seen Ralph for some time. The boy's in London. London? Dr. Shepard knows this isn't true because he just saw the boy yesterday walking with Mr. Ferris before her demise. Right? Yeah. Ackroyd is like, uh, shut up about what you're talking about. Come to dinner at my house, 7 p.m. <laughs> and Dr. Shepard's like, okay, I can make that. Yep, I got more important things to talk about. Yeah, enough about Ralph. Come over for dinner. So from the doctor's sister, Carolyn, Dr. Shepard learns Ralph is staying at an inn outside of town, the Three Boars Inn. How strange. Why wouldn't he stay with his father? Anyway, Mm -hmm. part two, new neighbors, old friends. While Dr. Shepard is trying to wrap his mind around the business of Ralph and Mrs. Farrers, a new neighbor arrives next door, a peculiar man named Poirot. Hercule Poirot. Dr. Shepard's Uh sister assumes the man to be a hairdresser, given his appearance. (laughs) I don't know what that means. In a quick and quirky convo with Dr. Shepard, Poirot discloses that he knows Ackroyd personally, and he's asked him not to discuss, Poirot's asked Ackroyd not to discuss uh, Poirot's true profession to the people of King's Avid. How strangely arrogant. His yeah. mustache. Oh, that's was, right. His know. mustache is so elaborate that Carolyn's like, oh, that's a hairdresser. <laughs> Who so, else looks like that but a hairdresser? Dr. Shepard is like, how strangely arrogant of this hairdresser not to want people to know his profession, but whatever. They're you know, <laughs> when you're a hairdresser, you go yeah, to a new town, people you, you retire. you for a discount. Exactly. Or to do your hair, okay, but you retire. So. <laughs> I understand. I understand. (laughs) Their convo is interrupted by Carolyn's arrival home. She's been off in the streets minding other people's business, and she brings her spoils home to her brother, (laughs) who is both amused and embarrassed by her behavior. 
Carolyn told Ackroyd that Ralph was staying at an inn. Ackroyd went off to find the boy, but after he did, Carolyn happened upon Ralph and a young woman she couldn't see. So let me set this up. Friendly Park, where the uh, Roger Ackroyd's home is, has a lot of land around it. Carolyn was walking on that land, trespassing in hopes of finding some people whispering so she could have <laughs> something to gossip about. This is for real her life. And it worked for her because she found Ralph, but she couldn't quite see who Ralph was talking to. Mm-hmm. Um, she heard Ralph saying that he didn't want to do anything to upset mean old Ackroyd, but that he'd take care of everything to ensure he isn't written out of the will. He must have been speaking with Flora, his cousin. Yeah. Only yep. that makes sense, Carolyn decides. She stepped on the twig, and when they heard her, both Ralph and the woman she still can't see ran away. And she was like, should I chase them? No, that's crazy. <laughs> slow down she and said go it home. just wouldn't be proper. Yeah. Dr. Shepherd decides to visit Ralph at the Three Boys Inn. Um, Ralph is happy to see the doctor, but discloses that he's in a bad mood. It's the old man Ackroyd, his adoptive father. Something must be done. And Ralph believes he must act alone. Very cryptic, everything Ralph is saying. Time for dinner. Time for dinner at Ackroyd's home. Remember, this is one of the two nice properties in town, so there's a full staff to wait on you while enjoying the pleasure of being Ackroyd's guest. Before entering the parlor, Dr. Shepard hears the shuttering of a window. Out emerges from the parlor a member of the staff, the housekeeper, Mrs. Russell. Dr. Shepard enters the room alone and notices that the windows are French. You know those double, like, long double door windows? So yeah, they're he couldn't so beautiful. Have, yeah, they're so pretty. That couldn't have been what he heard. What he heard must have been the shutting of the silver table. Picture a piano without keys. <laughs> it's just a table where you keep like antique, silver, curios, whatever. Um, so he opens it just to test his theory and closes the table to reassure himself that that was the source of the noise. It was. For dinner, um, in attendance is Roger Ackroyd, his sister-in-law, who is cold and bony. Ooh, the description of her like covered in chains when you shake her hand it's like holding a bag of bones (laughs) Um, uh, a family friend that likes to to hunt big game in Africa his name is Mr. Blunt and then Ackroyd's niece um, who is now engaged to Ralph Ooh, secretly the sister asks privately if the doctor will persuade Ackroyd to will her daughter some funds the conversation is broken to the doctor's delight when dinner is served and it's time for everyone to sit down. After dinner, Ackroyd takes Dr. Shepard aside. He needs to confide some things in him. Shepard, you attended Ashley Fairs in his last illness, didn't you? Yes, I did. He seemed to find even greater difficulty in framing his next question. Did you ever suspect, did it ever enter your head that, well, that he might have been poisoned? I was silent for a moment or two. Then I made up my mind what to say. Roger Ackroyd was not Caroline. I'll tell you the truth, I said. At the time, I had no suspicion whatever. But since, well, it was mere idle talk on my sister's part that first put the idea into my head. Since then, I haven't been able to get it out again. But, mind you, I've no foundation whatever for that suspicion. He was poisoned, said Ackroyd. He spoke in a dull, heavy voice. By who? I asked sharply. His wife. How do you know that? She told me so herself. When? Yesterday. My God, yesterday. It seems ten years ago. I waited a minute, then he went on. Do you understand, Shepard? I'm telling you this in confidence. It's to go no further. I want your advice. I I can't carry the whole weight by myself. As I just said now, I don't know what to do. Can you tell me the whole story, I said. I'm still in the dark. How did Mrs. Ferris come to make this confession to you? It's like this. Three months ago, I asked Mrs. Ferris to marry me. She refused. I asked her again, and she consented. But she refused to allow me to make the engagement public until her year of mourning was up. Yesterday, I called upon her, pointed out that a year and three weeks had now elapsed since her husband's death, and that there could be no further objection to making the engagement public property. I had noticed that she had been very strange in her manner for some days. Now... Suddenly, without the least warning, she broke down completely. She, she told me everything. Her hatred for her brute of a husband, her growing love for me, and the, the dreadful means she had taken. Poison. My God. 
It was murder in cold blood. I saw the repulsion, the horror in Ackroyd's face, so Mrs. Ferris must have seen it. Ackroyd is not the type of the great lover who can forgive all for love's sake. He is fundamentally a good citizen. All that was sound and wholesome and law-abiding in him must have turned from her utterly in that moment of revelation. Yes, he went on in a low, monotonous voice. She confessed everything. It seems that there is one person who is known all along, who has been blackmailing her for huge sums. It was the strain of that that drove her nearly mad. Who was the man? Suddenly, before my eyes, there arose the picture of Ralph Payton and Mrs. Ferris side by side, their heads so close together. I felt a momentary throb of anxiety, supposing, oh, but surely that was impossible. I remembered the frankness of Ralph's greeting that very afternoon. Absurd. She wouldn't tell me his name, said Ackroyd slowly. As a matter of fact, she didn't actually say that it was a man. But of course, of course, I agreed. It must have been a man. And you've no suspicion at all. For answer, Ackroyd groaned and dropped his head into his hands. Ackroyd is an honest, law-abiding citizen and feels he must act. This woman has paid the price for her sin. But what about the man who's blackmailed her? Something about what Mrs. Ferris told Ackroyd leads Ackroyd to believe that the culprit is a member of his own household. Shouldn't that person pay too? And they just assume it's a man. Ackroyd has a strange feeling that Mrs. Ferris left a note behind that will help him decide what to do. He just has to find the note. Um, Just at that moment, Ackroyd receives a letter. It's from Mrs. Ferris. She must have sent it before dying. He was right. She leaves in his care the pursuit of justice against the man who blackmailed her for a year. She also apologized for something she was supposed to do to Ackroyd, but did not, could not. Ackroyd puts the letter down and decides to finish it when he's alone. And Dr. Shepard is like, no, nah, read that letter now. And part of Dr. Shepard is just like his sister. He knows he. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he like, mm, read it now. You ain't got to tell me what's in it, but just read it while I'm here. Yeah, don't read it out loud. Just yeah, read it, read to, it yourself. to yourself just, while I'm standing just read here. It. Read it. <laughs> and I need Ac- to see reactions and everything. Just read it. Right. And Ackroyd is the type of man who the more you tell him to do something, he's definitely not going to do it. So Ackroyd's like, absolutely not. I'll read it when everyone leaves. So Dr. Shepard leaves. On his way, he bumps into a rough-voiced stranger. The stranger asks for the way to the Ackroyd home, and Dr. Shepard provides him with directions. Dr. Shepard arrives home and settles into his evening routine. Ah, pouring himself a bath, maybe washing his face, brushing his teeth. And he receives a phone call. It's from Ackroyd's butler. He must rush to Finley Park right away. Why? Roger Ackroyd has been murdered. Dun, 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 dun. And for real, why was I shocked here? The book is titled <laughs> The Murder, Murder of Roger Ackroyd. And I was like, he did. But oh, he was seriously? so kind. <laughs> Anyway, (laughs) part three, go home, Roger. When Shepard arrives at Roger Ackroyd's house, the butler's confused. Like, I never called you. Shepard insists on seeing Ackroyd himself. Like, this don't make no sense. Let me just see my friend to comfort myself that he's still alive. When they find him, Roger Ackroyd is indeed dead. Slashed from behind. Now, I thought he was slashed across the neck from behind. No, stabbed in the back. Okay. And the letter, the letter from Mrs. Ferris is gone. Ooh. Now only like the doctor knows the about fact? the letter. He's like, where'd it go? Yeah. An inspector arrives from the police department and interviews everyone in the home. Privately, Dr. Shepard tells in the inspector like everything. The weapon is a collector's piece. The inspector decides, perhaps an item from the silver collection. Curious. Shepard tells the room about the sound he heard when entering the parlor earlier that evening, the shutting of the silver table. And the housekeeper's like, oh, yeah, I found it open, so I just closed it before leaving the room. Really logical, you guys. Dr. Shepard returns home believing the inspector from the police department suspects the butler did it. The butler in in the billiard room with the knife. <laughs> yeah, very, yeah, very clue gamish. <laughs> <laughs> so are there more windows in this room or anything? Yes. Okay, that might be a problem. We'll see when we edit okay. the show. Okay, anyway, not okay, moving on. The next day, Mrs. Ackroyd and her daughter 
Flora are at Shepard's home. They want him to join them in visiting Hercule Poirot. The police are suspecting Ralph now. Flora wants to clear her fiance's name. Flora um, questions the doctor. Do you suspect Ralph too? Is that why you visited him at the Three Boars Inn after finding my uncle dead? What? We don't know this as the reader. Yeah, apparently Uh Dr. Shepard went from Friendly Park to the Three Boars Inn, but did not find Ralph there. The police found out about this visit and told Flora and her mom. Even Flora didn't know Ralph was in town. So they head to um, Hercule Perot's home. Perot, although retired for a few years now, agrees to take the case. The first stop, the police. Now, like we said, the police suspect Ralph. There are foot marks at the murder scene, and the police intend uh, to compare those marks with the shoes Ralph left behind at the Three Boars Inn. The next stop, the study where Aykroyd was murdered, the scene of the crime. Perot takes interest in the level of the fire when Aykroyd was found and the position of the main chair in the room. He believes Aykroyd opened the window after Dr. Shepard left that evening they all had dinner. Aykroyd would have done this for one of two reasons. One, because he was hot, but the fire level was low, so that's unlikely. Or two, so Aykroyd likely allowed someone to enter the home secretly through the window. The police found that the call Dr. Shepard received did not come from the home, but from a public phone. So that call where he was like, hey, this is the butler. Ackroyd did. You got to get here right away. That didn't come from the house. That came from a public phone. The police are eager to push Perot out of the case. He's annoyingly theatrical from his mannerisms <laughs> to his mustache. And they're slightly threatened by his reputation, which is like a, the world's best detective. Right. And his mustache, of course, is threatening, right? So the inspector tells the detective that a woman at the end saw Ralph leave and head toward the home of Roger Ackroyd. Um, the police believe Ralph entered the study through the window, asked Roger for money, and was refused. He then went out of the window. Flora then entered to say goodbye to her uncle. At the same time, Ralph was entering another window of the home to take the weapon from the silver case. Um, he then re-entered the study took off his shoes, and murdered his adoptive father. That sounds like a lot. (laughs) Really running around. Mm -hmm. He didn't have the heart to return to the inn after his deed, which is why no one can find him now. It was also at the time that Ralph must have called the doctor from a public phone. Mm -hmm. When the inspector walks away, Perot invites Dr. Shepard to investigate the summer house on the property with him. Inside, Perot finds a a scrapped like handkerchief and a goose feather. He puts the cloth and the quill in his pocket. These may be clues. Hercule Perot and the doctor look down to see Flora alone. She's giddy, almost singing. She's nearly dancing. She, she, is <laughs> she just found out that 20 pounds will be left to her from Roger Ackroyd. She doesn't notice Perot uh, and the doctor. 20,000 pounds. Oh, is that right? That makes way yes, more sense. That's like $1.2 <laughs> million today. Okay? Oh, look at you with the Don't research. Don't sidetrack her like, I went from being penniless to being a millionaire. Exactly. And it only took the death of this old man who I didn't like that much. Anyway, <laughs> um, out emerges Mr. Blunt, who startles Flora. He's planning to leave for Africa. The murder has startled his nerves. Flora begs him to stay, and they sit by a pond together. Perot lets him and the doctor be known, and they have a light, cheerful conversation before Flora and Blunt head inside. In the pond, Perot finds a gold wedding ring. Inside is engraved, from R, March 13th. Part 4, A Fool and Their Money. Hmm. Mrs. Ackroyd is furious that her daughter was left money and that she was given hardly any when Ackroyd was alive. Although she is only his sister-in-law and her daughter was Ackroyd's blood, but whatever. You know, she is really feeling like she deserves more. Yeah. For what? Yeah, for sure. Uh, <laughs> while she's lamenting the upcoming Inquisition, it's learned that 100 pounds is in Ackroyd's bedroom. He cashed a check last night. But when they pull out the wallet, there's only 60 pounds. Perot proclaims that the money must have been stolen. If Ackroyd did not pay any debts with it the same night he received it, then the money must have been taken by someone. It's also learned that the parlor maid named Ursula Bourne was dismissed for shuffling papers on Ackroyd's desk. And another member of the staff recently put in her notice. They are both questioned. Um, Perot believes Ursula's alibi is insufficient, but he also lets Dr. Shepard in on the truth. 
First, the police inspector involved is stupid and short-sighted. Okay. However, all signs do indeed point to Ralph. Still, Perot promised Flora that he leave no stone unturned, so he will investigate Ursula. Reminder, Ralph now stands to inherit a good fortune, yet he's nowhere to be found. As Perot continues the investigation, it is clear that no one is above suspicion in his mind. He sends even the doctor on an errand. And while the doctor's out, Perot like makes a visit to Caroline <laughs> and inquires about the doctor and the whole town. And Caroline's full of everyone's business. So she's happy to divulge information. Um, she talks about what she heard when she happened upon Ralph and some woman she couldn't see and what Ralph said and how suspicious it, it, it all is. Anyway, the conversation between Ralph and a woman um, that Carolyn didn't recognize is sticking out in her mind in an effort to protect Ralph, whom he's loved since he was a boy. The doctor never told Perot about that conversation. Also, the stranger that the doctor ran into that night, Ackroyd was murdered. The man with the rough voice who asked for directions to the house. Perot has found that the man was an American. He like made some inquiries and found the man. He's an American. Whatever his business in town, it was likely not a secret since he asked a couple people for directions to Ackroyd's home. Also, the quill that Perot found in the summer house, it belonged to that man, to the American. It's used to take heroin and cocaine, which is very popular in the States and Canada. Why would the parlor maid have been dismissed for shuffling papers is another thing that pops up in Perot's mind. Yeah, it, it seems, seems like a small that's really offense. petty. Yeah. Another thing, where is the missing 40 pounds? Another thing, why has Ralph disappeared? These questions are floating in Perot's mind. In fact, there are three apparent motives for Ralph to kill Ackroyd, according to Perot. One, someone stole the envelope containing Mrs. Ferrer's letter. Perhaps Ralph was blackmailing Ferrer's when the well dried up and he then appealed to his father before being denied. So the doctor has told Perot about the letter. The letter is missing. Perot's like, well, maybe Ralph took it to show his guilt. And he was the one blackmailing Mrs. Ferrer's. Uh, number two, perhaps he was in a situation he didn't want to get he, did, he was like in a situation that he didn't want to get back to his uncle. So maybe he had gotten in a fight or in some trouble and he didn't want his uncle to know. So he killed him. Third. Oh, you know, they say uncle sometimes, but it's his adoptive father. It's his father. I didn't notice that at all. Um, but yeah. Yeah. So just father. to confuse us a little more, I think that's actually a mistake. But um, in the book, it does call uh, Roger Ackroyd Ralph's father or uncle. Sometimes that's his father. Anyway, third, he inherits a great fortune when Ackroyd dies. So maybe that's why he killed him. Perot is so scary to Mrs. Ackroyd, Flora's mom, that she won't even talk to him. She'll only talk to the doctor. <laughs> and she confides in the doctor that she was the one who left the silver table open because she had saw like a little valuable piece. Mm -hmm. and she was going to get it appraised mm -hmm. to surprise Ackroyd. So, mm -hmm. so she resists. Did he say he needed some surprises? <laughs> no. And not so, like that. That sounds like thievery. Okay, if I so could just be obviously, so and judgy. Obviously, she was looking to steal it and have it appraised <laughs> and then pawn it or whatever and get the money. Because she resented Roger Ackroyd for never giving her and her daughter their own income. He only paid their bills and allowed them to stay there. <laughs> but they also call him stingy a little bit, yeah, didn't they? Absolutely. The nerve. As time <laughs> passes, it's clear that everyone suspects everyone. <laughs> Carolyn even knows how Flora may be the culprit because she's like, Flora never loved Ralph. So, you know, I can tell these things. I'm a woman. Mm -hmm. The butler said that he heard Flora say goodnight to her uncle before she went to bed and Ackroyd was soon killed. But maybe that's when Flora did it with no witness. The butler, Perot reveals after making inquiries, blackmailed his last boss and was indeed looking for a way to blackmail Roger Ackroyd. So why would he not also be the one who blackmailed Mrs. Furs? The butler might butler. have done it. Mm, shady. And the butler confesses to the first charge that he did indeed blackmail his last boss, but he denies ever blackmailing anyone else. <laughs> so whatever the man with the strange voice who asked Dr. Shepard for directions to the Ackroyd home that night is found. He's a surly brute with an American accent. <laughs> Perot deduces that the man is actually a full-bred Englishman from a town called Kent. He likely showed at the house demanding payment for something. And that may be where the missing 40 pounds went. Anyway, his story actually checks out. He was not in the house at the time supposedly Ackroyd was murdered. So he's a no-go. The police believe Perot is suffering from dementia at this point. 
They learned from <laughs> Carolyn <laughs> that Perot has a family member who lost his mind. And they like, maybe it runs in the family. Look at that mustache. He obviously crazy. <laughs> Perot deduces again that Flora was never um, the one. Flora never entered the room to say goodnight to her uncle. So the butler has always claimed that he heard Flora say goodnight to her uncle. Then Flora came out and was like, hey, don't bother my uncle tonight. He's asked for no visitors. And so the butler went to his room and never saw Ackroyd after that moment. Um, but Perot's like, I doubt that ever happened, actually. She fooled the butler into thinking so. And then Flora admits to having taken the 40 pounds herself. Thief. She, she, her and she, her mama, the niece. <laughs> the niece snuck into Ackroyd's bedroom and took the money. Before she was almost found out, she pretended to say goodnight to her uncle and told the butler that her uncle requested not to be um, bothered. Disturbed. Yeah, disturbed. When Flora runs out of the room in tears, Blunt says, Flora's lying, just so you know. The money was given to me um, for a special purpose that I cannot disclose. Um, Flora, he says, is lying to protect Ralph. Perot makes another deduction. Deduce, whatever. Perot assures Blunt that he isn't the slightest fooled by Blunt's lie. Okay? You clearly love Flora, he tells Blunt. That's right. Even though he's old enough to be her father and she's engaged to her kind of cousin, Blunt loves Flora. Mm. Perot tells him that he's decided Flora never loved Ralph. Her and her mother have a tough, shameful life, never having their own money. She was marrying Ralph for legitimacy, um, to have her own within the family she belonged to. But she doesn't love him. Now she's trying to prove his innocence out of loyalty, not love. The inspector especially is in shock, the police inspector. He's like, but Flora's a beautiful young woman. She lied. Women can lie. Oh, what do I believe? What is life? He was just so thrown by that. Like, yeah, seriously. so the police officer is like falling apart. He's she's just, a lady. She she's lied. Lady and she's pretty. <laughs> He's just realized he was wrong about Flora's innocence and blunt intent. Perot takes advantage of the inspector's situation being thrown off guard by asking for a favor. Perot wants to send a note to the press saying Ralph was found at Liverpool waiting for passage to America. This is not true, but that's what Perot wants to tell the press so it'll be published in the paper. The inspector is like, yeah, yeah, fine, fine, as long as I'm not blamed for any tragedy that results <laughs> from your lie. Perot assures him that what will happen after this is published will make it all worth it. So this is the thing with this book. There's a lot of random going on in the meantime right now. There's a Mahjong game where people are speculating who did what. We're not going to focus on any of that. So fast forward. The man with the rough voice is the illegitimate son of the housekeeper. The housekeeper is from Kent. And she gave her son the name because the man's name is Kent. Her, mm -hmm. His mom gave the son the name of the town. Okay. The son was blackmailing his mom, threatening to expose her secret. She's got an illegitimate son if she didn't pay him. Also, Kent, the American, was addicted to cocaine. So that's that man. Let's put him away. Never think about him again. The article comes out saying Ralph was arrested in Liverpool before leaving for the States. Of course, that's not true. But after this news comes out, Blunt and Flora are engaged. <laughs> Whoa, that so, made it easy. Mm. Yeah, Blunt made his intention known, and Flora was like, yeah, because I actually do love you. The parlor maid, who was dismissed for rearranging papers, she shows up to the doctor's house one day in tears. Perot sees her and understands everything completely. The parlor maid, Ursula Bourne, is actually Mrs. Ralph Payton. What? Yeah. So Ursula tells her story, the parlor maid. Her and Ralph, the adopted son, were secretly married at Ralph's urging because he told her his father would never let him marry a penniless girl. Ralph said when he could make it on his own and get his own money, they would come out with their secret marriage and everyone would know. But they were in, um, engaged and then married in private. After being engaged to Flora at Ackroyd's urging, Ralph was waiting for like the opportune time to get his money as like the potential groom to be. And then he was going to be like, psych, I'm already married. But the time <laughs> never came. So he kept pushing back the announcement of his engagement to Flora in hopes that he would get some money and then he'd be able to come clean about the fact that he's already married. 
But Roger Ackroyd was like, nah, I want to announce it today that you engaged. Why don't you want me to announce it? That's weird. That's suspicious. Mm. So anyway, um, Ursula was like uh, torn up inside. And so yeah. she told Ackroyd everything that evening. Distracted by his own troubles and resenting the deception taking place under his roof, he fired the parlor maid. He fired Ursula. So it's like convenient for Ursula and Ralph that Ackroyd was killed because he never had an opportunity to change his will. Mm. Perot's thinking about this. Perot has everyone gathered into a room, everyone except the police officer, where he lays out everything he knows. He reveals the holes in each of their stories and the truth he saw through them. For example, the ring that was found in the pond clearly belonged to Ursula. Jaded by her husband, Ralph, she threw it in the pond. And Ursula was the woman Caroline overheard Ralph speaking with that one day. Everyone seems to have a valid alibi, honestly, except Ralph. Where is he? Perot assures the room, no, no, like I said, I know everything, including everything. where Ralph is. Well, where is he? Everyone asks. He's right there. What? <laughs> the room turns around oh my and Ralph goodness. is standing in the doorway. Shocking. Dr. Shepard has been secretly hiding the boy. When Perot decided this, he suspected that the doctor would be hiding him at a facility doctors would have access to. So he told Caroline, Perot did, hey, you know, I got a nephew that's in the crazy house. Where's y'all's local crazy houses? This is a lie, but he wanted information. And Caroline gave him the information he wanted. He went to the um, house for the mentally disabled and found out that Ralph was indeed there. He made inquiries, found the record of the man known as Ralph. Ralph admits he has no real alibi, but he didn't kill his stepfather. Perot agrees, and his voice becomes menacing. He tells everyone in the room, I know who killed Roger Ackroyd, and that person is in this room right now. Ooh. Come forward, or I will tell the inspector, the police officer, tomorrow. Only you can save Ralph. Ooh, what a performance. That sounds like only you can prevent forest yeah. fires. <laughs> Very <laughs> that, good. That when Perot and Dr. Shepard are alone, Dr. Shepard's clapping like, oh, that was good. I felt like a night at the show. What? That, was, <laughs> that was fantastic. You're like a little performer. I, I love it. Um, Dr. Shepard is certainly impressed by his new friend Perot, but he asked him privately, why are you giving the killer a warning? Why not go straight to the police? Perot tells him why. I had got this far in my own mind when we came to the footprints of the window ledge. Here, there were three conclusions open to me. One, they might really have been made by Ralph Payton. He had been at Fernley that night and might have climbed into the study and found his uncle dead there. That was one hypothesis. Two, there was the possibility that the footmarks might have been made by someone else who had happened to have the same kind of studs in his shoes. But the inmates of the house had shoes soled with crepe rubber. And I declined to believe in the coincidence of someone from outside having the same kind of shoes as Ralph Payton wore. Charles Kent, as we know from the barmaid of the dog and whistle, had on a pair of boots clean dropping off him. Three, those prints were made by someone deliberately trying to throw suspicion on Ralph Payton. To test this last conclusion, it was necessary to ascertain certain facts. One pair of Ralph's shoes had been obtained from the three boys by the police. Neither Ralph nor anyone else could have worn them that evening, since they were downstairs being cleaned. According to the police theory, Ralph was wearing another pair of the same kind, and I found out that it was true that he had two pairs. Now, for my theory to be proved correct, it was necessary for the murderer to have worn Ralph's shoes that evening, in which case Ralph must have been wearing yet a third pair of footwear of some kind. I could hardly suppose that he would bring three pairs of shoes all alike. The third pair of footwear were more likely to be boots. I got your sister to make inquiries on this point, laying some stress on the color, in order, I admit, to frankly obscure the real reason for my asking. You know the result of her investigations? Ralph Payton had had a pair of boots with him. The first question I asked him when he came to my house yesterday morning was what he was wearing on his feet on the fatal night. He replied at once that he had worn boots. He was still wearing them, in fact, having nothing else to put on. So we get a step further in our description of the murderer, a person who had the opportunity to take these shoes of Ralph Payton's from the three boars that day. 
He paused and then said with a slightly raised voice, That is one further point. The murderer must have been a person who had the opportunity to pull on that dagger from the silver table. You might argue that everyone in the house might have done so, but I will recall to you that Flora Ackroyd was very positive that the dagger was not there when she examined the silver table. He paused again. Let us recapitulate now that all is clear. A person who was at the Three Boars earlier that day, a person who knew Ackroyd well enough to know that he had purchased a dictaphone, a person who was of a mechanical turn of mind, who had the opportunity to take the dagger from the silver table before Miss Flora arrived, who had with him a receptacle suitable for hiding the dictaphone, such as a black bag, and who had the study to himself for a few minutes after the crime was discovered while Parker was telephoning for the police. In fact, Dr. Shepard! In fact, it was Shepard who had been blackmailing Ferrers. If Ackroyd had learned the truth from the letter, he would have had no mercy on Dr. Shepard. So Shepard had arranged for a call that night. He arranged for a stranger to call him from a public phone to his home. A patient, (laughs) in fact. Yeah, but it was only his word that let everyone know what was said on that call. In truth, mm-hmm. nothing was said on that call. Nothing. He then raced to Ackroyd's house to secure his alibi. Perot urges the doctor to commit suicide out of mercy for Caroline, his sister. The doctor wow. obeys. And that's the end of the book. Should we take a break? Yeah, let's take a break. All right, let's do it. Alexis, so that was The Murder of Roger Ackroyd by Agatha Christie. What were your final thoughts of the book? Would you recommend it? What's your verdict? Let me just say, I'm always going to recommend, well, I won't say always. That's such a strong (laughs) usage of word. Um, I really like Agatha Christie. And um, the three books that we read, I give them all thumbs up. So, yes, I would definitely recommend this book. I like that the, um, I, I like how, Dr. Shepard was the yeah. killer. I yeah. while there were clues about Dr. Shepard throughout the book, I was um gen- genuinely like, "Oh, Dr. Shepard." <laughs> I was still waiting for somebody else to be announced the killer like. So who did you think else. it was? I-, I didn't know, but yeah. I I heard all the clues, but I was like, one of those four other four people that are in there. I didn't think the <laughs> women did it yeah. cuz I-, I felt like they're Stuff was, you know, they had enough um, alibi and information. Yeah, it was to more share. airtight. Their alibi. Uh huh. So maybe um, Blunt or um, Raymond. So one of them, possibly, but I still wasn't very sure. I was just waiting to see. I like to wait and see. You know, I just want to wait and see. I don't oh, want to get. Oh, okay, mm-hmm. okay. So I, I love that, and so I really love this book. <laughs> how it was um, told. I love the story. How it was told. And, um, you know, there's always so many different angles and little bitty stories with Agatha Christie's story. So I appreciated that. So I would recommend it. I like it. Read it again. Always. And the audio, the audio recording was great. Oh, okay. um, How about you, Kari? Would you recommend the book? You know, we rarely, rarely disagree. And I will tell you, I would not recommend this book and I did not enjoy it. And I don't think I like Hercule Perot books. I don't think <laughs> I like them. <laughs> because everything I liked about And Then There Were None, the fact that there were hard, concrete clues that the reader could follow throughout. I don't want to wait to the end. Because then oh. you can create a contrived ending or some um, Dios Ex Machina to come and conveniently fix everything or conveniently lead to the verdict that we've been waiting for for 400 pages i don't like that have your idea in mind from the beginning which i'm sure agatha did but so this is the thing all the details in this book are pointless (laughs) they're pointless in hindsight why that mahjong game where they're all speculating who did it that was pointless it didn't show you anything about dr shepherd it didn't give you any clues that would make you think he was the killer. That frustrates me. And okay. the fact that Dr. Shepard is the killer, it's just, 
a decision pulled out of thin air based on one thing he said about how long it takes to walk off the property. That's it. That's the only clue I found. You said there were other clues that led to Shepard. Like what? Oh, yeah, I definitely. I mean, agree. he was he had money troubles. Yeah, I do feel like there were other clues um, about him um, early on that kind of um, spotlight his um, his involvement in it. Um, he made references to to. Oh, I know which one particularly. He said Dr. Shepard said regarding Mrs. Um, Farah, what? Okay, Farah's? there it is. I don't know. That's hard. Mm-hmm. When I had, when I, when had I seen her? Not for over a week. Her manner then had been normal enough, considering well, considering everything. So it was. I felt like little things like that, um, kind of were clues that he was. So where's the in clue it. in that? That there was something else with their relationship. For me, the well, considering everything. Oh, he's was winking the at the audience. He's winking at the reader saying, I know something about her. And considering mm-hmm. that, she was in a good mood. Okay. Yeah, and I um, feel like there were a few of those in there. So the thing with, um, and then there were none, from the beginning of the book, the who did it is giving you clues. And in hindsight, they're clear. But while you're reading them, they're not so clear. And that's cool. That's cool. You can point to this and be like, oh, yeah, he's the only one thinking like this. Or he's the only one doing this. You know what I mean? I love that. Sure, sure. And you got that from this book. I didn't. Anyway, so my final verdict. No, I felt this book was contrived. I felt like it wasted my time. And I would not recommend it. There are other Agatha Christie books. And I just don't think I like Hercule Poirot's character. Even on Murder in the Orient Express, I thought the ending was contrived. Um, I'd say the same for this one. So that's just my personal opinion. Yeah, that is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we appreciate it because this and it is ain't worth your nothing. show. Okay? You know, whatever. But you know what? I'm just going to repeat. I do feel like there were clues. I can't name them all, but I felt like they were there. And again, I like um, hearing, getting that big boom drop at the end. Yeah, I yeah. I prefer it. So. There was definitely that when he was like, the killer was you, Dr. Shepard. Ah. And I was yeah. like, whatever. <laughs> and listen, and when Flora was saying that her last conversation with her uncle, she was like, yeah, um, I was talking to my uncle and he said, um, you you had a nice frock on last night. You ain't even talked to him, but you had to talk about yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I feel like there was so much hilarity in the book, too. I, so I like you, it. You so. enjoyed the characters. It's a character driven novel. Well, anyway, thank you. Thank you for recommending this book. I enjoyed it, but we're going to move out, okay? <laughs> okay? What are we reading next week, Kari? We are reading Dear Haiti, Love Elaine by Maika Mulit. All right. That's right. Well, thank you for listening to Lit Society. We're looking forward to meeting up with you next week, Thursday. Lit Society is brought to you by Alexis Honoria and Kari Herrera. Support the cause by leaving a five-star review for our show on Apple Podcasts, along with a comment about why you absolutely love us. Because we love you too, readers. We love you too, guys. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, tell a friend about Lit Society. Visit LitSocietyPod.com for show notes, this month's book list, and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter. And until next time, readers... Read something!